It's a privilege to be able to fill the pulpit again this Sunday. And uh, this Sunday is special. It's our last Sunday together this year. And next Sunday is a new year uh, for us. And so it's, I think, fitting for us to go through this passage of Scripture today, um, both as we look ahead to 2019 as well as as we continually uh, reflect on and evaluate uh, our lives uh, as believers and as a congregation. Um, I've titled this morning's message, True Worship, and we'll be looking at what Scripture has to say about what true worship is and the instructions that it has for us as believers in living lives of true worship to God. And this is very timely for us. Uh, again, as we transition from 2018 to 2019, but also as we uh, consider what exactly is true worship. And I think that, unfortunately, today in the church, that term is getting blurred. Um, it's getting uh, misunderstood. And sadly, I think false worship is becoming far more characteristic in the contemporary church today. This morning we're going to be reading from Malachi 1, so if you would turn in your Bibles to the book of Malachi, we'll read through Malachi chapter 1 together. Malachi 1, verse 1, the oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel through Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord, but you say, how have you loved us? Was not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but I have hated Esau, and I have made his mountains a desolation and appointed his inheritance for the jackals of the wilderness. Though Edom says, We have been beaten down, but we will return and build up the ruins. Thus says the Lord of hosts, They may build, but I will tear down, and men will call them the wicked territory, and the people toward whom the Lord is indignant forever. Your eyes will see this, and you will say, The Lord be magnified beyond the border of Israel. A son honors his father, and a servant his master. Then if I am a father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my respect, says the Lord of hosts to you, O priests who despise my name? But you say, how have we despised your name? You are presenting defiled food upon my altar. But you say, how have we defiled you? In that you say, the table of the Lord is to be despised. But when you present the blind for sacrifice, is it not evil? And when you present the lame and sick, is it not evil? Why not offer it to your governor? Would he be pleased with you? Or would he receive you kindly, says the Lord of hosts? But now, will you not entreat God's favor that he may be gracious to us? With such an offering on your part, will he receive any of you kindly, says the Lord of hosts? Oh, that there were one among you who would shut the gates, that you might not uselessly kindle fire on my altar. I am not pleased with you, says the Lord of hosts, nor will I accept an offering from you. For from the rising of the sun, even to its setting, my name will be great among the nations. And in every place, incense is going to be offered to my name, and a grain offering that is pure, for my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts." But you are profaning it 
in that you say the table of the Lord is defiled, and as for its fruit, its food is to be despised. You also say, my, how tiresome it is. And you disdainfully sniff at it, says the Lord of hosts. And you bring what was taken by robbery and what is lame or sick. So you bring the offering. Should I receive that from your hand, says the Lord? But cursed be the swindler who has a male in his flock and vows it, but sacrifices a blemished animal to the Lord. For I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name is feared among the nations. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word and this time we have to read and study it together. I ask that your spirit would direct this time, that your word would be read and understood, that it would accomplish its work in our hearts and bear fruit as we apply it. I ask that you use me as a vessel to speak your truth to our congregation today in Christ's name. Amen. It was 1576. Sir Martin Frobisher, an English explorer and sailor, set out on his first voyage in search of the Northwest Passage, or the link between the Atlantic and Pacific Oceans. On this first voyage, he sailed to some uninhabited Canadian Arctic islands and thought that he had found the passage, which was later determined to be a bay that was subsequently named Frobisher Bay. Frobisher's crew was able to kidnap one of the natives to bring back to England, along with a black stone from the area, which was thought to contain gold. Frobisher's return with news of possibly having found gold inspired and funded two more voyages by Frobisher back to the islands. During his second voyage in 1577, he brought back 200 tons of the ore. And on his third voyage, a group of ships went in 1588 and brought back over 1,000 tons of the black stone. Sadly, after burning the stone in special furnaces back in England, they realized that all he brought back was fool's gold, or iron pyrite. Nearly 300 years later, John Sutter, a German-born Swiss pioneer, began settling land in western North America, and the land that would eventually be called California. And Sutter envisioned building and establishing a city in California, hoping to gain great wealth through the entire process. On the land that he controlled, he built a sawmill, And during the construction of this mill in 1848, his employee, James Marshall, found gold and told Sutter. Sutter, being afraid that the gold would disrupt his other plans of construction and agriculture, tried to keep the discovery secret, and he tried to establish legitimate claim and ownership of the land. But unfortunately, others found out about the gold and came and mined and gained great wealth from it. And the land was completely destroyed, along with Sutter's hopes of becoming wealthy himself. Now, these two illustrations should help us to see that there are two forms of false worship. And as the title of the sermon indicates true worship, there, there is both true worship as well as false worship. True worship will provide a more formal definition of, but false worship, I think it's important to understand that there can be two distinct forms of false worship. One can involve engaging in passionate and self-sacrificing worship 
but to a false god, similar to what we saw in Sir Martin Frobisher's life. Or one can engage in improper or inappropriate or uninformed practices that they consider as worship to the one true God. And this can kind of be seen in the illustration of John Sutter. If we, if we define true worship, here's a, a working definition for the purposes of our message this morning. Um, true worship is defined as a believer's obedient response to who God is and what He has instructed in His Word, demonstrated in a life marked by thoughts, words, and actions that aim to exalt and glorify God and to please Him. And Scripture is full of examples and instructions with regards to true worship. We see in, for example, in Exodus 25 through 30, God provided very clear and specific instructions to the Israelites with regards to the construction of their place of worship, the tabernacle, as well as the selection and the consecration of the priests, who are basically their worship leaders and uh, their spiritual leaders. We see in the book of Leviticus various laws that God gave to the Israelites with the ultimate purpose of demonstrating that God is their God and that He is uh, that they are His people. Leviticus 20, verses 22 through 24 says, You are therefore to keep all my statutes, these laws that I have given you, my statutes and all my ordinances, and do them so that the land to which I am bringing you to live will not spew you out. I am the Lord your God who has separated you from the peoples. And so we see that true worship sets us apart as God's people. Ezekiel 18, verses 5 through 9, we see that the life, the practices, the actions, the deeds of a righteous man are pleasing to God and will result in his blessings. John 4.23, Jesus says that true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. In Romans 12, a familiar passage, Paul appeals to believers to offer their bodies, to offer their lives as their spiritual worship to God and to be unlike the world, transformed by the Holy Spirit's work through sanctification. We see in Ephesians 2, Ephesians 2 verse 10, believers are to exhibit good works as the evidence of salvation. Philippians 2, Paul exhorts the Philippians and all believers that our minds should be like the mind of Christ, who obediently followed God. And in Christ's case, his, his obedience led to his death on the cross. In 1 Timothy chapter 2, Paul instructs Timothy to instruct men and women in the body of believers regarding lives of worship. He says, Men should pray, lifting up holy hands without wrath and dissension. Women should dress properly, modestly, discreetly, and should be adorned or recognized for their good works. In other words, lives of worship should be what characterizes the men and women of the body of Christ. 1 Timothy chapter 4, Paul exhorts Timothy, as well as all believers. He says in verse 6, Be constantly nourished on the words of the faith and of the sound doctrine which you have been following. Discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. 
So Scripture is full of instructions and examples of what true worship is, lives of true worship to God. Charles Spurgeon said on true spiritual worship, he says, True worship lies in your heart paying reverence to Him, your soul obeying Him, and your inner nature coming into conformity to His own nature by the work of His Spirit in your soul. It's important for us to remember that personal and corporate worship are not mutually exclusive. Our personal worship is deeply influenced by corporate worship in the church, and vice versa. Corporate worship really flows out of the personal worship of the individuals in the congregation. And as I had mentioned earlier, sadly, it seems that, unfortunately, false worship is seeding and filling the contemporary church today. Charles Spurgeon, again, said, "...the nearer we get back to the nakedness of worship, the nearer we get to its truth and purity." It is because man has fallen that as his body wants clothing, so he is always dressing up his religion. Do you get that? As his body wants clothing, as we feel the shame of sin and want to cover it over, so we also want to dress up our religion. John MacArthur says in his book titled Worship, The decline of true worship in evangelical churches is a troubling sign. It reflects a depreciation of God and a sinful apathy toward His truth among the people of God. So it's within this background then that we come to our text this morning in the book of Malachi. Malachi, as as far as providing a background for what we're going to be studying this morning, Malachi was the last of 12 minor prophets in the Old Testament. And the minor prophet designation was not based on a a lesser importance, uh, more just related to the length of their respective manuscripts in the Old Testament. Malachi's message comes to Israel at a time of tremendous disobedience toward God. And we see in the Old Testament this repeated cycle of the sin and disobedience and the indifference of the Israelite nation to God's laws, instructions, His promises, and His covenant with them. Back in Exodus, we read that they disobeyed at the foot of Mount Sinai. They were then later forced to wander in the wilderness for 40 years because of their disobedience. And even after they entered the promised land, they did not heed God's instructions to rid the land of other nations. And instead, they engaged in idol worship and interracial, interethnic marriage. Later on, following the reign of King Solomon, Israel was then divided into two kingdoms, Judah and Israel. And both of these kingdoms would eventually succumb to oppression and eventual exile. And along with that exile, in 586 B.C., we see that the temple of God was destroyed and the city of Jerusalem was desolated. And all of this was according to the prophecies that God gave to the Israelites. In Leviticus 26, God says, Yet, if in spite of this you do not obey me, but act with hostility against me, then I will act with wrathful hostility against you. I will scatter among the nations and will draw out a sword after you as your land becomes desolate and your cities become waste. 
1 Kings 9, God says again, But if you or your sons indeed turn away from following me, then I will cut off Israel from the land which I have given them. And so we see God repeatedly warning the Israelites, and we see Israel's repeated sin and disregard for God and His laws and His instructions. So they were exiled, and eventually they were released and permitted to return to the land that God had promised them originally. All of this, again, according to God's prophecy. In the 5th century B.C., Nehemiah oversaw the rebuilding of the second wall around Jerusalem. The temple was then rebuilt, and the sacrificial system that was originally instituted was reinstituted by the Israelites and the priests. But sadly, over the ensuing 100 years after their return, this initial zeal and enthusiasm to worship God waned, and there was progressive disregard again toward God's laws and practices of worship according to his instructions. And that's where we find ourselves here in the book of Malachi. And as we walk through this first chapter, we're going to see several points and questions with regards to what true worship is to the one true God. And these are outlined in your bulletin. In verses 2 through 5, we're going to see God's worthiness of worship. The first part of verse 6, we'll see that true worship is appropriately informed. Verses 6 and 7, we'll see that true worship is in accordance with God's instructions. Verse 8, we'll see that true worship elevates God's true worth. Verse 9, we will see that true worship is more than deeds. Verses 10 and 11, we will see God's response to false worship. Verses 12 through 14, we see that true worship flows from my right heart before God. And verse 14, at the end, we'll see a reprisal of God's worthiness of worship. Now in verse 1, we see Malachi set the stage for what God is going to say to the Israelites. It says, The oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel through Malachi. This word oracle, the Hebrew term here refers to a load or a burden. Malachi was bringing a burden before the people of Israel. This was a weighty message toward Israel for its sinful heart and its sinful practices against God. Starting in verses uh, 2 through 5, we see God's worthiness of worship. And in these verses here, we're going to see five attributes of God that demonstrate His worthiness of worship. We're going to see that God is supremely loving, He is sovereign. He is just, He is powerful, and He is eternal. Starting verse 2, God says to the Israelites, I have loved you. So right from the start, God clearly states here that He is a loving God. This Hebrew term, loving, refers to an affectionate or intimate love. God is expressing His close, intimate, affectionate love for His people. And how is it that the Israelites respond in verse 2 as we read on? They, they respond by asking God, How have you loved us? And this is undoubtedly referring to their remembrance of their exile and their oppression, but it is also a failure on their part or an ignoring on their part of the, their own sin that brought those consequences upon them in the first place. 
And so the Israelites respond to God by asking, How have you loved us? And God responds back to them again in verse 3 by reaffirming His love. He says, Was not Esau Jacob's brother? Yet I have loved Jacob. Jacob was the individual, the forefather through whom the Israelite nation was born, was descended. And so right here at the beginning, God expresses and God states His supreme love for His people. Also in verse 3, we see that in addition to His supreme love, He is supremely sovereign and just. God supremely chose Jacob over Esau. You guys recall the story of these twins uh, and the life that they lived shortly after as young adults. God's choice of Jacob was completely by his sovereign choice and not by any merit or special quality of Jacob compared to Esau. And in his sovereign choice, he chose to love Jacob and love the nation of Israel. But in verse 3, we see God also says, I have hated Esau. And this term hated refers to the sentiment that one has toward an enemy or a foe. So in addition to his love for his people, God also has hate for his enemies or his foes. You see, Esau was an unrepentant sinner. In Genesis 25, we see that Esau despised his own birthright. In Genesis 26, he made life bitter for his parents. In Genesis 36, Esau took on wives of Canaanite descent, blatantly against the instructions of God. Esau was an unrepentant sinner, and he justly received God's treatment and God's punishment. And so in addition to God's supreme love and his sovereign choice, God is also just. In verse 3 and going on into verse 4, God says, I have made Esau, I have made his mountains a desolation and appointed his inheritance for the jackals of the wilderness. God was just toward the unrepentant heart of Esau and Esau's descendants, the nation of Edom. God was sovereign and powerful in controlling even the physical world around them and the time both present and future in demonstrating his justice. In verse 4 he says, Even though Edom will return and build up the ruins... God will tear them down again. Finally, in verse 4 and 5, we see that in addition to God's supreme love, His sovereignty and selection, His perfect justice, and His power, we see that God is eternal. In verse 4, we read, Men will call them, the Edomites, the wicked territory. And the people toward whom the Lord is indignant forever. Only God can speak of eternal things with such certainty. God's just punishment toward the sinful Edomites would be forever and clearly visible among the nations as others would know the Edomites and call them the wicked territory. And in verse 5, it says, The Lord be magnified beyond the border of Israel. And this refers to God being magnified throughout the world. And we know that this will eventually happen when He returns and establishes His kingdom. 
So we see right from the start of this chapter that God establishes His worthiness of worship. True worship begins with a clear understanding that God is worthy of worship. Now in verse 6, we see that true worship is appropriately informed. And starting in verse 6, God simply points out a couple of standard relationships that the Israelites were familiar with. He says here, A son honors his father, and a servant honors his master. These relationships and the respective interactions that we read here, these were common for the Israelites. These social and cultural customs were in accordance to what God commanded them in the Ten Commandments and the Levitical Law. So this was certainly of no surprise to them that one would say that a son honors his father and a servant honors his master. But God goes on here to point out that the Israelites have failed to observe these aspects in their relationship as God's people to God himself. We go on and read that God himself says that if I am a father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my respect? That word respect is also translated fear or reverence. God says, where is my fear? Where is my reverence? Where is my respect? And he goes on specifically to tell that and accuse that of the priests of the Israelites. He says, where is my honor? Where is my respect, my fear, O priests, who despise my name? So God being the spiritual Father, the provider, the caretaker for the Israelites, their master and their leader, God says that they have denied him his honor and fear, and moreover, they have despised his name. Another way of translating the term despised is disesteem, giving the idea that you once esteemed me, But you've taken that away. You are no longer doing that. You're doing the opposite. You see, true worship begins with having a proper or appropriate view of who God is. God is our Father. God is our Master. In addition, God is supremely loving. He is sovereign. He is just. He is powerful. He is eternal. Worship must be to God for all that He says He is, all that He is, not who we want Him to be or the parts that we want to emphasize about Him. John MacArthur says, You can't take one attribute of God, any one attribute of God, and isolate that as if that defines God alone. God must be understood in all the complex of all His attributes. In God's divine nature, those attributes complement one another. They do not compete. And they cannot be fully or accurately understood in isolation. So where do we find a proper view of who God is? How do we become appropriately informed in worship? Well, it's through God's Word, right? Worship informed through any other means is false worship. Turn with me to 2 Kings, verse 22. 2 Kings, verse 22 We're going to read here about King Josiah and the role that the Word of God has 
in worship. Second Kings verse uh, chapter twenty two verse eight it says then. Then Hilkiah the high priest said to Shaphan the scribe, I have found the book of the law in the house of the Lord. So they found the lost word of God in the house of the Lord. Jump down to verse 10. It says, Moreover, Shaphan the scribe told the king, saying, Hilkiah the priest has given me a book. And Shaphan read it in the presence of the king. Verse 11, When the king heard the words of the book of the law, he tore his clothes. He was convicted of his sin. He humbled himself. Let's go to chapter 23, 2 Kings, verse 1. Then the king sent, and they gathered to him all the elders of Judah and of Jerusalem. The king went up to the house of the Lord, and all the men of Judah and all the inhabitants of Jerusalem with him, and the priests and the prophets and all the people, both small and great. And he read in their hearing all the words of the book of the covenant, which was found in the house of the Lord. The king stood by the pillar and made a covenant before the Lord to walk out after the Lord and to keep his commandments and his testimonies and his statutes with all his heart and all his soul to carry out the words of this covenant that were written in this book and all the people entered into the covenant you guys see the importance of God's word in worship God's word brought conviction of sin. It brought humility. It brought a response of obedience, commitment to God. We've mentioned and quoted in the past the 2018 State of Theology survey. And if you filter the survey results to only look at the results based on answers provided by evangelicals, these are people who would claim to be Christians, the results are quite shocking and sobering. 61% of evangelicals believe that the Holy Spirit is a force and not a personal being. Nearly 10% did not agree that Jesus was the only person who never sinned. 71% believe Jesus was the first and greatest being created by God. 19% believe the Holy Spirit could tell them to do something forbidden in the Bible. Nearly 10% did not agree that Christ's death is the only sacrifice that could remove the penalty of sin. Only 40% of evangelicals believe that even the smallest sin deserves eternal damnation, which obviously brings into serious question what people think about the holiness of God. 56% believe that most people are good by nature. 53% believe God accepts worship of all religions. 12% did not think the Bible has authority to tell them what they must do. Only 86% believe the Bible was 100% accurate in all that it teaches. 24% believed it contained helpful accounts of ancient myths, but is not literally true. These are evangelicals. 7% of evangelicals do not believe the Bible is the highest authority for what they believe. And while 93% of them did, 37% believed that religious belief is a matter of personal opinion and not about objective truth. Now, if there is this view and perspective of God, as we see in the survey, and if there is this regard for His Word, well, how can we claim to engage in true worship to God? 
Brian Houston, the founder and lead pastor of Hillsong Church, headquartered in Australia, posted a statement to their church's website around the time that their country was voting on laws with regards to same-sex marriage. And he wrote this. He says, As a Christian pastor, I will always teach and preach according to Scripture and my personal convictions. Now, at first glance, that might seem okay, but if Scripture is all-sufficient and all-powerful, I would argue there is no room and no need for personal convictions. But sadly, it's these personal convictions, and especially when these convictions contradict or go against what is clearly stated in Scripture, that the convictions are what are followed. Many of you are probably familiar with the song, Reckless Love. Maybe. It was ranked number one in the CCLI Top 20 Songs, Top 20 Worship Songs in December. Now, why we have rankings for worship songs, I don't know. That's a separate discussion altogether. Um, But some of you may know that this song, Reckless Love, has been somewhat controversial because of this term, reckless, used to describe God. Now, when the songwriter was interviewed in, in Christianity Today, he had this to say, When I use the phrase, the reckless love of God, I'm not saying that God himself is reckless. I am, however, saying that the way he loves is in many regards quite so. That's very confusing to me. It's very very philosophical, but it's almost like us saying, my child is not disobedient, but his actions are disobedient. I don't know how to make sense of that. This article went on to interview various individuals about what they thought about this song. And this is what one individual said about this song and as, uh, about music, musical worship in general in the church. He says, in theory, if your worship is an organic process, organic process emerging from who you are as a particular body of believers, you'd be less likely to get wrapped up in larger cultural disputes and be able to focus on what is being produced in your own church and whether it is an accurate reflection of that particular body's expression of devotion, worship, praise, lament, what have you. Again, a lot of philosophical thought processes going on there. But the issue here is that neither of those statements have any founding back to worshiping God according to His Word. Statements emphasized here, worshiping out of an organic process that reflects us, emerging from us. There's an emphasis today on style, on poetry, of using terms and adjectives that elevate the good feelings that we want to have rather than following what God has clearly laid out in His Word. And within that context, God is therefore confined to how man can and chooses to define Him and describe Him. And unfortunately, this is not far from simply making God an idol. It's not worshiping God with a proper view of who He is. 
Well, in verses 6 and 7, we see that true worship is in accordance with God's instructions. Look at verse 6 with me. God says, You have despised my name. And, And the Israelite priests respond by saying, How have we despised you? And again in verse 7, God says, you, you present defiled food upon my altar. And they respond again, well, how have we defiled you? You get the sense here that the people were defensive against God's accusations against them. They claimed that they did not despise God, that they did not pollute God, that they did not disregard His table of sacrifice. But God goes on and responds to them, And he has an answer for them, right? He says, you have despised me by offering uh, defiled, polluted foods. You see, the Israelites were projecting that they worshipped God, that they were still engaged in appropriate practices of worship to God. And yet, they clearly, clearly, clearly were not. In Genesis 4, we see when it comes to the sacrificial system, dating all the way back to Genesis 4, going all the way back to Genesis 4, we see that Abel brought the firstborn of his flock. He brought the best of what he had to sacrifice to God. In Exodus 29.1, God commanded them to bring an unblemished animal sacrifice for the purposes of consecrating the priests. In Leviticus 3, 4, and 5, God commands them to bring unblemished animals for the fellowship offering, for the sin offering, for the guilt offering. And in Leviticus 22, God clearly lays out what are unacceptable sacrifices. And it's within this context then that the Israelite priests have the audacity to respond to God by saying, how have we despised you? How have we defiled you? And God says clearly... You have, according to the instructions that I have given you in the past, you have clearly disregarded them. You are not offering me true worship. You are giving me false worship. There are other examples of how practices and how places of worship have been implemented and executed out of accordance with God's instructions. We see in Scripture, we see in John 2 and Matthew 21, for example, the improper use of the place of worship, the temple. Jesus cleared out the temple as it had become this marketplace of individuals being cheated and people having self-gained financial gain from being in the atmosphere of worship. 1 Corinthians, Paul rebukes the Corinthian church for their improper observance of communion as well as their improper use of or perspectives on the spiritual gifts. Are there contemporary examples of places or practices of worship that are not in accordance with Scripture? Again, from the State of Theology survey, it says that 47% of evangelicals believe that worshiping alone or with your family is a valid replacement for regularly attending church. A recent New York Times article titled, Internet Church Isn't Really Church, had this to say. It says, more and more churches these days are offering services on the Internet. Connexus Church in Ontario, which had been live streaming its services the year before, saw its online attendance surpass the number of people who showed up on a Sunday morning. 
In just last month, the celebrity pastor Judas Smith announced Church Home Global, essentially church via app, with forums and the ability to pray for fellow congregants by pressing your thumbs onto icons while hearts float up the screen. Now, how does this fit with what God has exhorted us as believers in Hebrews 10 to not forsake the gathering? 35% of evangelicals believe churches must provide entertaining worship service if Entertaining worship services if they want to be effective. So church services must be entertaining in order for it to be effective worship times. Case in point, Pastor Gary Clark, the senior pastor of Hillsong London, when asked about why there was complaining among the elderly members of his church with regards to the contemporary worship music in the church. He had this to say, I attended a Rolling Stones concert and I was stunned at how old the crowd was. But the Rolling Stones were still the Rolling Stones. It was still horrendously loud and its production value was off the charts. It still sets the bar, it sets the bar on what a stadium event looks like. Volume is not an age thing, it's an internal thing. Maybe there's more to the complaining that old people have about contemporary worship, that it's about them and something they've got to learn to get out of themselves and progress. So the bar set for our worship services is a Rolling Stones concert. An old friend of mine shared an article titled The Tragic Decline of Music Literacy and Quality. And the author said, An astonishing amount of today's popular music is written by two people who are both responsible for dozens of songs in the top 100 charts. And he goes on to list songs from Katy Perry, Britney Spears, Kelly Clarkson, Maroon 5, Justin Timberlake, Bon Jovi, Justin Bieber, And the author says, with only two people writing much of what we hear, is it any wonder music sounds the same, using the same hooks, riffs, and electric drum effects? Well, if we combine this with what we just heard from the State of Theology survey and from Hillsong London's perspective on how worship services should look, if a a secularist can see a decline in the musicality and the depth of secular music, What does this say about the contemporary church worship music that is being patterned after it? John MacArthur says, Worship aims contemporary, loose worship, if you will. Casual worship aims to be as casual and relaxed as possible, reflecting an easy familiarity with God, unbefitting His transcendent majesty. This type of worship seems to aim chiefly at making sinners comfortable with the idea of God, purging from our thoughts anything like fear, trembling, reverence, or profound biblical truth. Now, when worship is guided by worldly values and standards, and permissive of wrong theology and doctrine, it should be no surprise that blatantly unbiblical practices get introduced and adopted as acceptable as well. And I won't go into too much detail about the soaking ministries, the quote-unquote soaking ministries that take place at Bethel Church, where they claim to have encounters in the third heaven, 
something that if we read from 2 Corinthians and Paul's experience in the third heaven, we see that this soaking ministry is a blatant disregard for what Scripture has to say about this extremely private and sacred interaction with God. And yet this is part of the worship ministries of churches. When the activities and practices and the environment and atmosphere, the words, music of the church become indistinguishable from a secular venue, we must seriously ask where the instructions are coming from and who is being worshipped. Let's go on in verse 8. We see that true worship recognizes and elevates God's true worth. In verse 8, God says, You present the blind for sacrifice, is it not evil? You present the lame and sick, is it not evil? Why not offer it to your governor? Would he be pleased with you? Would he receive you kindly, says the Lord of hosts? The analogy here was appealing to what the Israelites would have understood socially and culturally in their interactions between themselves and their governor. In those days, the presentation of gifts or animals between people and their governor usually involved ceremonies surrounding meals that would be shared together. And in this case, if a person were to bring a blemished, lame, or sick animal to their governor to eat with the governor, nobody would have thought to do that. And yet, this was what was commonly being done before God. Al Mohler says that there is a, quote, incalculable deficit, incalculable deficit of fear and awe in the contemporary church today. Mohler says that we have exchanged fear and awe for the spectacular. The spectacular can be fabricated, can be planned, can be staged. The spectacular is temporary. It comes and goes, unlike true, genuine awe, which is only of God. God's true worth should leave us in awe. Instead, we all all too often have settled for the spectacular. It's interesting, as I reflected on that, the ad for Hillsong LA's Facebook ad for their Christmas service event came up. And this is what their advertisement reads about their Christmas service. Join us this Sunday at the Ace Theater for our Christmas Spectacular. This epic cinematic experience features film, incredible live songs, stunning visual effects, and of course, Christmas fun for the whole family. Brothers and sisters, the spectacular can be fabricated, can be planned, can be staged. But true, genuine awe, elevating the true worth of God, that, that, that is, that's unique and that is only of God. R.C. Sproul says, We are to worship God how God wants us to worship Him. We must remember that the purpose of Sabbath worship is not primarily evangelism. Worship and evangelism are not the same thing. The solemn assembly is to be the assembling together of believers of the body of Christ to ascribe worship and honor and praise to their God and to their Redeemer. And the worship must not be designed to please the unbeliever or the believer. Worship should be designed to please God. True worship recognizes and elevates God's true worth. 
God says here to the Israelites, if you would not even think to offer these types of damaged animals to your governor, why would you give them to me? Are you truly seeing my worthiness of worship? In verse 9, let's go on. God says, true worship is more than deeds. In verse 9, God asks the priests, Will you not entreat God's favor that He may be gracious to us? With such an offering on your part, will He receive any of you kindly? You see, now God is openly pointing out the inappropriate and improper sacrifices that the priests were offering. These were stemming from irreverent, incorrectly informed, unrepentant hearts. They were merely engaging in the practices of sacrifice expecting God's continued favor. They were going through the motions, and they expected that merely going through the motions alone would garner God's favor. They had this vending machine or genie-in-a-bottle type of mindset in their approach to God, and God rebuked them by saying that true worship involves more than just the deeds. Can you offer these inappropriate sacrifices and still expect to get my favor? In Matthew chapter 15, verses 7 through 9, Jesus rebuked the Pharisees and the scribes. He said, You hypocrites, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far away from me. The Pharisees and the scribes were outwardly displaying actions practices that others would have thought should have been garnering the favor of God. And and Jesus here says, You hypocrites, you honor me with your lips, but your heart is far away from me. You see, true worship is more than just the actions. It stems from the heart. In verses 10 and 11, we see God's response to false worship. Let's look at that together. God says, Oh, that there were one among you who would shut the gates to the temple, shut the gates, that you might not uselessly kindle fire on my altar. That word uselessly is also translated in vain. That Hebrew term for useless or in vain means devoid of cost, devoid of cost, devoid of reason, devoid of advantage. In other words, empty. God is saying, Oh, that there was one among you who would shut the temple gates so that you might not uselessly offer empty worship. Why? How will God respond to it? In verse 10, He says, I am not pleased with you, nor will I accept an offering from you. That's God's response to false worship, loose worship, empty worship. We see an extreme illustration of God's response in the story of Nadab and Abihu, two of the priests, Aaron's sons, in Leviticus 10, verses 1 and 2. It says, Now Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, took their respective fire pans, and after putting fire in them, placed incense on it, and offered strange fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. And fire came out from the presence of the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. You see, God does not accept false worship. 
In verse 11, we go on and read, God says, For from the rising of the sun, even to its setting, this is a phrase that basically refers to the entire earth. God says, Over the entire earth, my name will be great among the nations. And in every place, incense is going to be offered to my name and a grain offering that is pure. For my name will be great among the nations. You see here, God's name will not be great because of the false worship that these priests were offering. God's name would be great because He is great. God does not depend on our worship, and He certainly will not accept false worship. In verses 12 through 14, we see that true worship flows from a right heart before God. Look with, look with me in verse 12. It says, You are profaning it in that you say, The table of the Lord is defiled, and as for its fruit, its food is to be despised. You also say, My, how tiresome it is, and you disdainfully sniff at it, says the Lord of hosts. And you bring what was taken by robbery and what is lame or sick. So you bring the offerings. See, God now is getting away from the actual actions themselves, and He's getting at the heart. He says the priests in their hearts were essentially saying to the Israelite people through their actions, the table of the Lord is defiled, and as for its fruit, its food is to be despised. And this is okay, guys. And He says... The priests had the heart attitude, My, how tiresome it is to offer sacrifices to God. You disdainfully sniff at it. This consecrated responsibility, privilege that you have as priests to offer the sacrifices on behalf of the people, you disdainfully sniff at it. Is this true worship then? True worship flows from a right heart before God. Psalm 51, David writes, God desires truth and wisdom in the inward parts. He says, A broken spirit and contrite heart you will not despise. In Micah 6, it says that our worship is to be an outpouring of our life and heart characterized by obedience and humility before God. It's not merely actions. James 1.27, we read, True religion, true worship, involves genuine caring and services to those in need and purity. And remember, in Isaiah's, Isaiah chapter 6, Isaiah's experience before the throne of God, he was brought low, completely humble, realizing his filthy and his sinful state. See, true worship flows from a right heart before God. A heart that is contrite in recognizing our utter failure, our deplorable sin, repenting in true faith and surrender to God. Finally, let's look in verse 14. We see a reprisal of God's worthiness of worship. Look at me. Look with me here in verse 14, the second part of verse 14. He says, after he has rebuked the Israelite priests, he says, Cursed be the swindler 
who has a male in his flock and vows it, but sacrifices a blemished animal to the Lord. He says again to these priests, You are cheating me. You are offering me false worship. I will not accept it. But in the second part of verse 14, we read, God says, I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name is feared among the nations. So this chapter starts and finishes with God's pronouncement of His worthiness of worship. God is the great King. He is the Lord of hosts. His name will be feared among the nations. So in closing, let's reflect on this oracle of God through Malachi. Is your worship appropriately informed? Is your worship according to and consistent with what God has instructed? Or is it based on your preferences or your own perceived good intentions? Does your worship recognize and elevate the awesome and incomparable worthiness of God? Is your worship of God merely actions or deeds? Is your worship rooted in a pure heart that desires to exalt and please God? Hebrews 12, verses 28 and 29 says, Therefore, since we receive a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us show gratitude by which we may offer to God an acceptable service with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Let's pray. Lord, you have called us as your followers to live lives of true worship to you. May the words of our mouths, the meditations of our hearts be acceptable to you. May all we do, whether in word or deed, be for your glory. Thank you for your word, its richness, its consistency, its power. We pray that it would direct and be the foundation of our worship to you as individuals and as your church. In Christ's name, amen.